0: Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's my delight to have Alex Mosco, Paul Alexandru, and Martin Lucas as my guests. They're three of the best storytellers that I know on the planet. And what we're going to be talking about today is your customer emotion and the power of the right story. So, Alex, quick introduction
1: from you, please. Morning, Marcus. Thank you for having me. So my name's Alex Mosco. I run Nine Millimeter Public Relations, and my job is to help my clients, typically business owners, to tell their stories. And the way that I do that is I help them to audit their brains. So we take all of their experience, their expertise, the lessons they've learned, we package them up as a story, and we tell them through the media, through social media, through
2: email, however best we can. Thank you. Martin? My name is Martin Lucas, I'm the CEO of Gap in the Matrix. So we spent four years investigating and modelling decision-making because there's a huge gap in the market about businesses, humans, society, just not understanding how each other thinks. So we modelled all of that, created some AI programmes and some human-led programmes. We help businesses with significant amounts of growth. Predominantly, we work in the the enterprise, the corporation FTSE space, but we also work with high-growth companies as well.
0: Excellent. And Paul?
2: Hi, it's uh, Paul Alexandru,
3: I'm the founder of Modern Equivalent. I do a lot of work with leadership teams and boards to help them evolve through moments of tough growth, strategic transformation, uh, change, and I guess most of what I do is really based on my work with, with high growth tech and innovation companies, both outside and inside of them. And I guess one of my uh, chief observations as it relates to this conversation is that a uh, you know, story has moved from being something that used to sit in marketing departments to something that is now an essential tool for boardrooms and leadership teams. So I do a lot of work helping them understand and codify that.
0: I think it's really important to reiterate a couple of points here, that story is something that we all use and we all buy into. It's a way of unifying the brain. It's a way of uh, creating change. It's a way of driving businesses forward. And Paul's point about it being something that's moved into the boardroom is really essential. The CEO is the chief storyteller. And if the CEO is not good at telling stories, then that company will struggle. It won't attract the right kind of staff. It won't attract the right kind of investors. It won't attract the right kind of customers. CEOs who have great story and are able to articulate that clearly in a way that draws people in creates emotional attachment, have a very powerful position to play. So Alex, let's start with you, editors. What is it that editors are looking for?
1: Right, good question, Marcus. So essentially an editor is serving an audience, right? So everything that they do needs to, to serve, that, to give that audience the fruit that they're looking for, right, to keep them coming back on a daily basis and hooking them in with stories that are going to engage them, okay? So so essentially, they're looking for a headline. That's the first thing they're looking for, something that's going to stand out and grab attention. And so as a job for us as PR people is when we're sending emails to editors is the headline is kind of the holy grail. It's the most important thing. We're like email marketers, right? So we're up against a huge amount of competition, all vying for the attention of the editor. And so the first thing that they see has got to really, really stand out. Now, in order to do that, that headline has got to almost encapsulate the the entire story in a few words. So what we're looking for, something that's going to really stand out, so it might be something that strikes fear, right? And we're seeing a lot of that today in the media with COVID for certain, right? People clambering for as much information as they can. And the thing that really grabs them is things that are a little bit scary. It can be controversial, right? So it can go against the grain of what people believe. That typically catches attention when people have been going in one direction, somebody comes along, wait a minute, that may not be right. We need to do is go this path. But the number one thing is it's got to be relatable, right? So the story has got to feel like it's right for the people that that media serves. So I would say that those are the three most important things. So as as a PR person... And as anybody looking to attract an attracted audience, if you're thinking about the stories that you're going to tell, the most important player in that story
0: is the audience that you want to attract. And that's what the are looking for. Absolutely. So, Paul, I'd like to bring you in on this, because obviously the work that you have done has been very much about making the audience central. Tell me about what a brand is and how that relates to the audience that it's trying to attract.
3: We're now squarely in the age of, in the customer age. I don't know any successful or thriving business that doesn't start with customer. I think, you know, there was a time in the industrial age where we used to start with products and then we'd figure out how to distribute it, where to buy the eyeballs and then, and then hope that people came. I think today what we're seeing is that great businesses are putting customer needs and behaviours at the centre of, of their decision making. My point though is that you are purely customer focused at your own peril. I think unless you have a clear point of view of who you are and are able to to answer that fundamental human and corporate question, which is one around identity and self, I think you're at risk of commoditizing yourself. So I think brand as a tool plays an incredibly important role in the customer age Because essentially, what it does is it codifies the character of a company, so the soul of a company. So it tries to capture who they are, what matters to them, what role they play in the world, and why ultimately people should care about them. What I think often happens is people confuse brand and story. So a brand is not a story, a company is not a story. A company has a brand that codifies who it is as a character. And the story is its way of connecting meaningfully with customers that it cares about.
0: Thank you. So on that note, Martin, I'd like to bring you in because I know you have some great stories about brands that have failed to connect with their customers and what you've been able to do in order to get them back on track. So would you mind sharing a couple of those without necessarily giving away any names?
2: Yeah, I think, too, I mean, it's really key to Paul's point, really, and building on what Alex was talking about, is that I find that a lot of brands just get lost in this idea of who they think they should be, and they get just get a little bit stuck in their ways, stuck in time, if you like, right? So I'll give you a story about a billion-dollar fashion company who their entire setup, their brand strategy, their brand guidelines, everything, had nothing to do with their customers, So what you had was what I call the the whim of the C-level person, right? So be it CEO, CMO, agency leader, strategy person in the agency. It's generally one of those four parties, right, that overtakes because of their whim or their ego. And they basically got a complete lack of data or understanding of the customer. But they say we're going to attract, in this case with a story, a new audience, right? And they went to attract a new audience by changing the design of all their products, which meant that they were ignoring what was generating 95% of their revenue already. And then the new audience didn't want what they wanted. So it ended up costing the market share left, right, and center. So they still had loyalty in their customer base, but nobody Mm -hmm. was buying anything. You're talking about a billion-dollar company. So I think to both of the other gents' points is that you have to understand what people are looking for from you. Because we get tricked by this idea of new. New is still wanting some familiarity because that's what we're used to. So new can only be a slight pivot from what we're used to, particularly with fashion because it's such an emotional purchase. And then to give you another quick example on the B2B side is that what I find time and time again with the exception of, weirdly, of banking and insurance is that people don't understand their audience. Like full stop, there's very little research gone into it because we think that it's too complex to understand, or the, the biggest tip that I always give people, particularly with B2B, is that they end up focusing on the benefits that their, their product or service gives to the business, but they ignore mm-hmm. the buyer's mindset. And there's a huge mm-hmm. difference between the two, because the buyer has emotional needs with it. That would be my two for you.
0: Again, really poignant. So Alex, tell me something to draw on this how does one build connection with an audience? Because it it seems that this is a resounding theme from all three of you. What do you have to do when you're developing your story in order to create that connection and really create the emotional connection between you, your company, your story, and them? Okay, so really good question.
1: I think the place to start is to talk about story and why it's such a powerful medium, why it's such a an impressive vehicle for getting your point across, for getting people bought into what you have to say, right? And the first thing is to say, we learn from stories from a very early age, right? So one of my first memories is of my dad telling me stories, right? Reading stories to me, whether it was the Book of Three or the Chronicles of Narnia. So, you know, in, in order for us to learn from a very young age, we use, use stories are used, So we're used to taking information in and relating to the stories we're being told. And the second point is that they're psychologically friendly, right? So they're packaged up in a way that makes it very easy for us to take in the information we're being given. But even more importantly, we can then pass that information on to others, right? So they have a very neat structure, beginning, middle, and end.
0: I want to build on that because I think there's the power of word of mouth, because I think story is just the starting point. So Paul, could you come in on this?
2: Yeah, sure.
3: And what about The,
0: the, the impact that story can have in order to create word of mouth, because that social proof seems to be massively important in the fast growth of any business. I was talking to the sales leaders from companies like Splunk and Gong, and their momentum comes from making their users wildly successful. And for them to then go and take that message out to the rest of their organization and to their broader networks. So I'd love you to elaborate on that.
3: I think in this day and age, Marcus, it's critical. Moved from the broadcast age and we're now in the opt-in age. One of my old agencies used to talk about this time-poor paradox that no one has 30 seconds to be interrupted, but today everyone will find 30 minutes to share the things that they care deeply about. So, it's incredibly important to build narratives, to build experiences that people want to share. In fact, that are deliberately shareable. This is something that we saw at Kahoot, actually, which is a game based learning platform, it sort of started in schools and now has been adopted by uh, Google and Facebook's and Fortune 500's. When we built the brand for that, one of the things that we did was we wanted to bake the brand. Into the product and customer experience. So it wasn't just a veneer, it wasn't just messaging. It was actually something that came to life through people's interactions at a platform level. What we started to find, and so we started to play around with language, we understood the customer journey, the different emotions that people were feeling through the uh, product experience. And then we were working with, say, language and UX to try and dial up. Emotions where people might be feeling a little bit more negative. So finding those little pockets of air for us to inject ourselves into. What we found when we did it well was that people were screen grabbing that part of the uh, the experience and sharing it. So they were creating these. You know, in Johan's, who was a, one of the founders, in his words, these social artifacts. So I think that when it's done right a story that is actually baked into the experience or a story that connects with people in a particularly meaningful way becomes incredibly powerful because it self-animates. You know, it doesn't require the same marketing investment to find its way into the world. And we know that today people believe other people over other brands. So to get recommended
0: by anyone in whatever fashion is an incredibly powerful asset Thank you. So Martin, I'd like to bring you back in at this point, because you, you said something that was very poignant, which is that people will be loyal, but won't necessarily be buying. And I'd like you to talk about a couple of stories where you've been able to leverage that understanding through the data in order to help them change the language and change the conversation that they were having with their customers in order to drive business.
2: Well, let's talk about what loyalty is first of all, right, because this is a big breakthrough that we had when we are doing the four years of research, is that loyalty works between customer and brand, customer and product, customer and service. It works exactly the same as it does to real-life friends inside your brain. That's how loyalty works. So if you think about, you might have a friend that you go with when we were allowed out, right? I feel like I've been grounded. (laughs) When we were allowed out, out, you go out for a pizza on a Friday evening, right? And once every few months, you've got another friend that you contact who's your party friend, right? And you have a crappy day at work and you've got a friend that you call because you want to unload, right? And they could be the same person for everybody, but let's imagine it's three different types of friends, right? If the pizza friend suddenly says, I don't want to go for pizza, or I want to go for pizza but on a Tuesday, or I just want to try a completely different food, right? If they do that enough times, what you really want is the pizza. You want the social interaction, but the pizza is your habit, right? And when they change that, you lose your loyalty with them so that you're still... You're still their friend, you're still loyal to them, but in terms of the meaning that they had for you, it changes, right? So when brands try to change too much, it's the reason they can end up with a very loyal base in terms of, this is why I despise most market research, right? Because it's what generates the 1.61% on Facebook, because you get a bunch of people in the room, you've got their mind focused, and they go, yeah, the advert's great, it's wonderful, that's fantastic. But then it doesn't make any impact when it gets released. And the reason it doesn't make impact is that we can enjoy something, but it's not going to raise loyalty in us. It's not going to make us actually act and, and do anything with it. To your point about a couple of stories, I mean, we've got we've got stats coming out of us left, right, and center from the 50-odd brands we've worked with. We know that we understand how, how humans think. The one that comes to mind for me was when we took away, and we do this for all brands, but we took away 23% of their Facebook spend. And we did that because it sounds funny because everyone's always talking about growth and making money and I get that, right? But what we did was actually say that this big chunk that you're advertising to, you send them the wrong product at the wrong time or they just don't care about you. So you're better off investing more money in other people or just using that money for other means. So that's one part about it is that people just throw mud at the wall. That's the mud sticking strategy that we're in in the digital period for advertising, right? So they could get rid of that And the other part for me with what we've done with data is just to look at the relevant component of it. So big data can serve a purpose, don't get me wrong, it's wonderful. But what we generally do is use about 15 to 20% of what a client deems to be their big data. And then what we're driving out is relevant meaning. Because if you look at the emotional context and the meaning that's being given to you, like, for example, a lapsed customer, you shouldn't put them in a system, which is what most brands do that when they stop responding after 12 months, you just put them into a big bucket. Nobody's actually saying, well, what stopped them being lapsed? Is it product? Is it design? Is it experience? Is it language? And that, that's a big part about the emotional side of data.
0: Very interesting. I know, I know that you quoted that stat on Facebook. What was it? It was $56 billion a year is wasted on Facebook advertising because it's wrongly targeted and you know, it's just the wrong type of advert or in the wrong medium.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly that. It's 4.832 trillion ads that make up just over 50-odd billion dollars of spend, right? But it's an economic situation. For, so from a business point of view, the business says, right, if I put in a 1,000 bucks and I get 10,000 back in sales, I'm happy. But nobody's asking what Well, we started, but nobody was asking what's it like from the customer's perspective. Because in essence, what you're doing is 98.39% of those ads are actually pushing people away because you could be serving them stuff that, pushes them further and further. And that billion-dollar fashion company I spoke about earlier, that was their biggest problem, is that they've got people that are loyal, but you're just giving them things, both product and experience, therefore
0: advertising, that doesn't resonate
2: with them. So they're just being pushed away.
0: This then raises the obvious question, which is in order to build your story, presumably it makes a good deal of sense to speak to your customers. Paul?
3: Marcus, I am astounded at how many businesses still today don't have a deep, empathetic understanding of who it is that they're designing for. I mean, so many companies still are starting with product. They're still feature pushing. And for me, I think it was Martin that raised it. It's really just sort of, you know, leaders or companies allowing ego to sort of ride roughshod over common sense And I think when you start with more of a a needs-based understanding, behavioral understanding of who your customers really are versus who you'd like them to be, you're able to understand what moves and motivates them. And when you understand your customers at a human level, you're able to design better narratives, better experiences, better products, better services that speak to them. So you eliminate all of the waste, you eliminate all of the risk, well, not entirely, but you certainly minimize it. And, you know, it, it still, it shocks me how at senior levels, that level of understanding is still absent.
0: It is shocking. In this day and age, the CEO is the chief storyteller. They're a totem. And mm. it's their job to convey that message. So, Alex, let's bring you in at this point. How do you get to convey the voice of the customer through the mouth of the chief executive. So I just want to pick up on something that Paul was saying, because
1: I'm nodding my head fiercely speaking there. One of the first things that we do when we go into any client is we speak to our client's client, right? Because a mantra in our business is that your best customers will tell you everything that you need to know to sell to more people like them, right? You just need to know what the right questions are to get the information that you need, right so it's really important to speak to your customers but you know not ask them about your company ask them about their context I think for a story to have power it has to be relatable right your audience has to be able to see themselves in that story if you think about any movie that you see see at the cinema the first thing that a movie does the first thing that the screenwriter does is he introduces you to the character normally the the main character, the lead character, and the context that they're in because they know that that's how they're going to bind the audience to that story because if we relate to that person, then we're going to be carried through the story because we want to know what's going to happen to that person because we kind of feel that they're us, right? So we do a lot of case study writing, okay? And uh, so basically capturing the story of our client's client. And one of the biggest mistakes that the companies make is that they always tell their case study, their story from their perspective, because they think, well, we did the work. It must be our story, right? But it absolutely isn't. You know, if we think about, we've had this conversation before, Marcus. You talk about Star Wars and Yoda. I talk about the Karate Kid and uh, Mr. Miyagi. (laughs) And actually... If a corporate corporate was telling either one of those stories, they'd make Yoda the star, right? Or they'd make Mr. Miyagi the star. But actually the star is Luke Skywalker or the star is Daniel, right? Because, Because they are the people that we relate to. That's the story that we want to tell because we want to know what it's like How are they going to come out in the end, right? So that's the thing that's important. The thing that carries us through the story is to know what the end thing going to happen. Are we going to achieve? Are we going to achieve our result, right? Because if Daniel can achieve his or if Luke can get to where he needs to go, then maybe we can too. So to come back to your question, in order for, and it's interesting, again, really interesting what Paul was saying, right? In terms of that dislocation between brand and people and story, right? And in order for a, the head of a business to really engage with his audience or her audience, it's really important that they talk to the context that their customer finds themselves in, right? And they position what they can do in terms of where that customer is today and where they want to be and that journey that they're going to take them on through other people that they've helped right? So you don't talk about what you can do. You talk about what you've done for others and why it's important to you. And if you can get across that meaning, then people will relate to the meaning and they'll buy into it.
0: That's very interesting because, again, what I see salespeople do all the time is that they make themselves and their company the hero. And in fact, it's their job to be the guide. People come to us for leadership, for a safe pair of hands, because they're looking for a better future. Whether it's moving away from pain or towards gain and pleasure, they're looking for a better future. And I see this mistake happening time and time again, where people, uh, it's essentially masturbatory because they're, they're pleasing themselves. They're not really pleasing their audience. And they're not putting their audience front and center. We see this in the channel as well, where vendors are so self-centered they're not partner centric. They're not focused on making the partners more successful. So Martin, I'd really love to bring you in here in terms of how you can use that data to uncover those insights, those intrigues that give you the raw material to build the right kind of story that's compelling, that's attractive and is shareable.
2: That's a good question runs to many different levels, right? Because what we're really talking about is understanding, to use Alex's keyword that we talk about a lot, is the context, right? And there's an emotional context and a meaning that the brain assigns to every brand, every product, every service, right? So the brain does a categorization, basically. So if you think about one of the, again, a different fashion brand, but one that most people would know, and let's see if you can figure out this puzzle, 86% of their male base only buys polo shirts from them and you're talking about a global fashion brand, right? So the context of how the male audience sees the brand is only polo shirts. And the work that we did with them was helping them understand how that happens and how the brain categorizes it, right? So there's an emotional need that sits behind fashion, whether you're a fashionista or an ultramarathon runner, you still buy clothes to represent your identity, right? And from that, What we looked at was, well, why are people only buying polo shirts? And the thing that you have to recognize is that it means that the brain is assigned buying jumpers, buying shirts, buying trousers, buying everything else from another brand. So what you're actually trying to do is it comes back to loyalty. You're asking people to switch their loyalty because they might buy polo shirts from this brand, but they might buy polo shirts from brand A, B, and C as well, right? So the context needs to be understood. So when we talk about data, to answer your question, is that You need to understand how it works within the brain because our emotions are are our reward system. And per Harvard, 95% of all of our decisions are based on emotion. So what we're looking for from that brand is only to buy a polo shirt. So you could send me all the emails, all the content, all the advertising you want about jumpers. But if you don't give me affirmation about polo shirts, you're less likely to to convert me. So you have to look at what the emotional context is. And then you can't just jump into a new product category. You've got to give me more of what I know And then you can coax me into that type of change. And from a a B2B side, I want to mention that as well, because it's really easy for people to assume that emotion only comes into the consumer world. But the emotional context of B2B actually runs incredibly deep. So when you get the context and the storytelling right, exactly as the two other gents have been talking about this morning, just amazing insights, by the way, really enjoyable. From a B2B point of view, people are either looking for ambition to succeed, to complete a task that they've got, or to defend themselves, right? So the emotional context actually runs really deep within inside B2B. So the answer to your question about the data is if you don't put emotion into the context, then you're missing out on the human reward system. If you're missing out on the human reward system, then at best you're hitting 5% of our decision making.
0: If that doesn't wake you up, that means that 19 out of 20 of your attempts will miss. So for God's sake, stop producing tedious product data sheets that talk about fizycarbongulators on the defibrillator and do not talk about you, your company, your product, or your service, who your investors are, how long you've been in business, because that is the equivalent of showing photos of your ugly children to strangers and expecting them to be excited. So I'd really like to take this into the, inside the company because the power of story in order to galvanize an organization to move towards common purpose. So, Paul, I'd like to bring you back in here because this is something that clearly you've had a great deal of success with. Tell us how critical it was and what you had to do in order to create that internal story so that the entire organization was walking in lockstep towards those common outcomes.
3: The starting point is why it even matters and why it matters more today, possibly any other moment in, in, in history. I mean, we are squarely in the age of change. I mean, post-pandemic, things will never be the same again, and who knows what they'll be like. You know, I deal a lot with high-change environments, either by sort of self-will or by market disruption. In any sort of context where you're dealing with high-change, high-growth, sharp pivots. It's very easy for people within an organization to get confused and get disconnected or misaligned. And that's terrible for business because it means that people aren't operating off the same hymn sheet. They're not seeing the problem through the same lens. You know, if you've got a company of 15,000 people and they're not aligned, you've got 15,000 different perspectives informing your business. So, I mean, it's very dangerous for a business to behave in this fashion. And that's where I see the power of a really clear brand and story. And when it's elevated uh, high enough within a business, it starts to simplify who we are and what our role is. And when people within any organization are clear of those, they're able to put themselves into that narrative. They're able to connect with the role of the business, the role of the organization. And when it's a mission or a purpose or a brand that is just irresistible, it becomes an incredible talent magnet. And you see this with, you know, mission-driven businesses, the Patagonias, the Teslas, you know, they attract the world's best talent because who they are and what they're seeking to achieve in the world is just something you can't you know, you just want to be a part
0: of. Excellent. Thank you. Alex, I know that you've got a great story around a CEO being that totem, that storyteller to attract staff. Do you mind sharing that? Sure. And I want to pick up on, again, on something that Paul said, you know,
1: because so I was sitting in on a, a web meeting yesterday where a company was talking about the values, its new values, its value proposition, and what it wanted to say to the market. And it all sounded really good, right? But the problem was there was no proof to back it up, right? So there's, you know, I think we live in the age of people can no longer just talk the talk. We now have to walk the walk. And I want to talk a little bit about social proof in a minute. But I think, you know, there's, it's all very well having a great story and having a great person on top of a company providing, you know, with the values and principles in which the company is founded and the mission that it's on and all these wonderful words, words, words. But unless a company actually acts in the way that it talks, then it loses that credibility and and it disconnects from people very, very quickly. So I work with a very large British-based internet organization. And over the last 20 years, it's grown to a billion pound organization. And when I, I started working with them 10 years ago, I was speaking to a number of people throughout the company because I needed to understand what made the company special because the job was to attract very talented IT practitioners, something that they were struggling to do. And what amazed me was that everybody that I spoke to told the, the company's story in exactly the same way. I mean, the words were slightly different, but it was exactly the same story. And the reason they were able to do that was because, first of all, that story started at the top, but it wasn't just the story. It was actually the way that the company behaved. And when I went out to speak to IT specialists, software developers and and architecture experts, and spoke to them about what it was that they disliked about the companies that they were currently working for, we heard a number of things came up. First of all, they, they didn't feel like they were making a meaningful contribution. They just felt that they were a cog in a machine and that nobody really cared about them and that the work that they were doing wasn't particularly meaningful. The other thing was that they had the, all these great ideas about how they could take their company forward, right? So they were bought into the work that they were doing and they were having these ideas, but nobody was picking up on those ideas. They weren't able to share them. There were, nobody was motivating them to take them into action, right? And actually, the thing that came out the, at the lowest, I mean, it's still important, but the thing that came out the lowest was pay. They, I mean, the money was important because it's a, a way of demonstrating, you know, rewarding you, showing that you are valued. But actually, that was the least on their priority list. When we went to speak to the people in in our client company, exactly the opposite was true, right? Extremely entrepreneurial organization. They were very meaningful contribution. They were pioneering any ideas they came up to was heard and was incorporated. So that's the stories that we told
0: and what was the impact
1: in terms of the volume of people they were able to recruit by telling So when we started working with them they had an IT team of 200 just around today they have an IT business a technology business of nearly 1300 people wow, wow. that's pretty impressive and over what period of time so that we've been working with them for about a decade and you know to be fair we can't take a full we can't take all the kudos for that our job is to, to, to want. motivate you know you want to. power and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. So I wouldn't want to take, take full responsibility for it. But, and I want to come back to myself and Martin has spoken about it at great length and something that Paul has alluded to. And this idea of social proof, right? This idea of third-party, independent, credible people telling your story, telling the same story, but from their perspective, right? And giving it credibility because it's not coming from the mouthpiece. And I think there's a difference between... So social proof is almost like a tick in a box, right? Somebody says something nice about you, tick. We've got some social proof thread on the website if you're going to do anything with it at all. Martin talks about social nudges. And it's kind of, I like that more because it's got an action element to it. And what social proof, that independent proof should do is actually motivate action. So when people are thinking about social nudge, it should be a micro-narrative. It should be an encapsulated story that kicks action off.
0: So, Martin, can we bring you in on that? Can you talk to us about how social nudges work and how you create the context for them?
2: Yeah, it's a really good one. This whole idea of nudge theory and behavioural economics has got the, one of those classic things where people get excited about it, people run at it, and then they they implement it without understanding what they're doing, Right. To so think about e-commerce sites where you look at a picture and it gets a pop-up and it says that twenty-three people have looked at this in the past hour, and you're like, "Well, who cares?" Or you get another pop-up that says, "Dave from Stoke just bought this shirt," and I'm like, "Oh, well, that's great for Dave," but all you're now making me think about who's who's Dave and do I want to be like people that dress like that in Stoke? Do you know what I mean? Like this is the bad implementation of nudges. Whereas the stuff that Alex and I do and as I like we partner on client work and things like that together and. What he's amazing at is extracting stories from customers, right? And we use that, and we use other things. Like, I'll give you an example that takes a mass, right? So a lot of a lot of large brands and small brands have a bucket load of reviews on Trustpilot, right? And what a lot of them do is then implement a piece of IP from Trustpilot so their Trustpilot reviews show on the website, right? And it becomes absolutely pointless. The star system matters a little bit to people, right? But the reason why it becomes pointless is that nobody is actually harvesting which, which reviews to show and how they relate to the emotion of the product or the service or things that you're buying. So what Alex is talking about is the real proof and the real power of a social nudge is using the right types of message from your customers in the right places. So it's that classic thing where humans use software to either answer a question for them Or just to save them time, which can make them a little bit lazy in this particular example. What you want to do instead is what we've done recently for a jewelry client, one of the favorite pieces of work I've ever done, is that they had three days after their product was was shipped, they had Trustpilot requests, right? And we took that out of their system and instead we put in a trigger-based approach using trigger psychology, right? that was about storytelling, and now they've got a steady stream of customers talking about the story and the meaning of why they bought the product, whereas before it was just about the service and the product. Right Now it's actually about the meaning and the emotion, and we can now use that in every single channel and assign it to different products. It's incredibly powerful. And that's the kind of social nudge that Alex is talking about. And it's worth millions to people.
0: Very interesting. How do you put that into the context of for example, uh, an IT tech scale-up? Because I know that all of us have a particular interest in that.
2: It's a great point, right? The IT scale-ups and things like that, there's always a motion behind it, right? You need to drop the fact of, uh, Paul mentioned it earlier, you can't just talk about features and benefits endlessly. You've got to understand the difference that your product makes. I predicted this 20 years ago, that the IT world was going to use move from back office to front office, right? So now CTOs and CIOs are being asked to validate what they do. And by the way, no offence to anyone that's associated with this, but any IT person that agrees to implement Skype for business just doesn't know what they're doing. Because everybody that I know that's implemented that, it's supposed to be a comms solution. um, My wife borrows my Zoom, right? Because her business has Skype for business. It doesn't work. So it's just all about the context about what difference you're trying to make. And you have to humanise the experience. So no matter how dull you perceive or how technical your solution is, you can always humanise it.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. So Paul, let's wrap up on you. I'm very curious to talk about how you can use the power of story to raise awareness of change that your organization is helping to bring to your customers. So tell me about some examples of where you've been able to do that, for example, within Kahoot or within other clients of yours.
3: When you say that, Marcus, do you mean where it's being used as a tool outside the company or inside the company?
0: I'm happy with either, because I think change is change, and you're still selling to an audience. And if you want to make enemies, recommend change.
3: <laughs> Don't want to sort of sound like I'm just piggybacking off the words of others, but I think you know there's some real red threads to what both Alex and Martin have been talking about And I think this idea that story needs to amount to more than just commercial fiction, and I think that's where it's done really poorly, is where there is all words followed by no action. I think where it drives meaningful change, sustainable change, is where there's visible proof of a narrative, of a story or of of, of a point of view, some gesture. The other thing I'd say is where it's, um, it's launched internally first. So again, I, you see this happen a lot. Big rebrands happen and they're driven by marketing and they launch outside the business and the people inside the business find out because it's come to them third hand. So I think where brand and story as a tool for change is used best is where it's co-authored by business. So the business and parts of the business are involved in shaping it and it's launched in the business first so that people within the business feel some ownership, not just authorship, but some ownership over whatever the the new brand or the new narrative is. That for me is where it's used as a tool for change rather than a, a way of communicating change.
0: Very interesting. Gents, thank you so much. This has been incredibly enlightening. I'd love to do this again if you're all up, for it. Absolutely. Cool. Okay, (laughs) so this is Marcus Kauki signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you found this useful, please like, comment, and share. And if you'd like to get in touch, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. Happy selling. Stay safe. Bye-bye.